Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Awesome. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Why don't you take out your Bibles if you have one. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 4, the end of it. We've been working through this book, this gospel, also translated good news. This is John's biography. John is one of the apostles, one of the followers of Jesus, and writes his version of this story, his eyewitness account, after all of the other ones. And he writes it for an explicit purpose, we find at the end of his book. And his purpose of writing this, and this is key to understanding the whole book of John, is that we'd understand that Jesus is the Son of God, and that as the Son of God, we are invited to have belief, bestuo in the Greek, this trust in him, and that that belief produces life to the full. And so as a culture, we're chasing life. We're chasing abundant life. And even if we have different versions or translations of what that would even look like, this is what we all want. And John lets us know that that happens through a certain way, it's through belief, and that belief in a certain person, that's Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So... We're going to be looking today this, um, specifically about how our belief in Jesus is specified that he has a certain kind of authority, that it's not enough just to believe in Jesus as a person, Jesus as a moral teacher, that we need to believe that Jesus is the son of God, equal with God, co-eternal. And in doing that, it's within that authority that Jesus possesses that we find life. Now, that's an interesting concept to teach on because we have an interesting relationship with authority, don't we? Uh, We live in a culture that has a lot to say about authority. We live in a country that celebrates freedom of speech, that we, maybe for the first time in history, have the right to even speak up against authority where cultures for thousands of years have not had that right. And so we live in a culture that we are very opinionated when it comes to authority. Um, And that begins very young. My son's three years old, and he is very opinionated about authority, (laughs) specifically mine. Um, (coughs) When he throws a toy or sneaks a popsicle, and I have to go and say, hey, you can't do that. Uh, You got to go. And he just knows, like, dad's coming. And immediately, he'll confront me. And he'll, he'll just quotes from Augustine. He'll say things, you're not the boss. Um, he went, like, last week, he's like, you're not my dad. I'm like, yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> as far as we know, this is like, <laughs> I hold that role. Um, he'll let me know. Like, if he, know, if he feels like he's getting in trouble, he'll tell me. He's like, you need to go to your room. And sometimes that feels pretty appealing. Like, I'm like, you're right. I probably should. <laughs> That's probably exactly what I need right now. Um, and so, I mean, there's just something in us that authority is something that at some level we all crave. And over our life experience, it's something that we push against. But we serve Jesus. The Jesus that we're proclaiming today has all authority. And that has incredible ramifications for our life, our belief systems, our behaviors. And so we're going to be diving into that today. And so we're going to be reading rather a lengthy section of scripture, longer than we normally would. But as we do, I would encourage you to look for the themes of authority. 
And just ask yourself the question, what, what does Jesus have authority over? And, um, and then we're going to kind of dive in just to a few of those things that stood out to us and be able to ask ourselves a question, how does that apply to our life? How does the, the authority of Jesus, how do we welcome that into our day-to-day living? So John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 43. Um, it'll be on your screen if you don't have a Bible, um, but you're welcome to get a Bible app. We have a Bible to give to you if you don't have one as you leave in the brown bag. Um, so please check that out. But we'll be in John 4, starting in verse 43. I'll be reading out of the NIV, and it says this. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Uh, the two days he just spent in Samaria. If you remember last week, my brother taught on the woman at the well. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that had been done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. So he's kind of come back. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who is close to death. Unless the people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him. You'll never believe. The royal officer said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took, his, uh, took him at his word and, des- and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem to one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by the five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. So Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. Uh, Lots going on here in this passage. 
Um, but specifically within the theme of authority, there's just five things I just want to present to you that we see Jesus having authority over um, and his authority um, overcoming. So the five things are this. Number one, that his authority overcomes human categories. We'll talk about what that means. Number two, that his authority overcomes perceived impossibilities. Thirdly, that his authority can overcome deep helplessness and brokenness. Fourthly, that the authority of Jesus um, overcomes human conviction. And lastly, his authority overcomes mere existence and invites us into life to the full. Let's go walk through these five categories. The first one um, is this idea that we see Jesus' authority move him beyond normal social norms um, by creating categories for humans. Now, uh, we live in a day and age, in a country, and, and even our faith lends to the fact that everyone's created equal. We believe in the Imago Dei, that everyone has God-given dignity, and, <coughs> and that's all good. But we, if we're honest with ourselves, as much as we can believe that up here, sometimes it's hard to separate that. We categorize people. We even categorize ourselves. And especially in cultures like this one that has some sort of a caste system, um, this was a huge deal and still is a huge deal today that we look at people's socioeconomic, their ethnicity, where they're from, their age, and we immediately put them in different categories in our mind, all of which, which is contrary to what God's word says, yet we still find ourselves doing that. But one of the things that we see Jesus doing is his authority comes and does away with all of that. For example, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, who was a high-ranking Jewish official, who was a Pharisee and a Sadducee, who had lots of influence, um, had a lot of money, a lot of uh, intelligence and education. And then the next chapter, we see him interacting with a Samaritan woman, the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And then in this morning, we read about two different incidents. One is he's, he's interacting with a royal official of Rome, a non-Jewish influential power person. And then we see him interacting with a Jewish person who has no status and no influence. He's an invalid. He's been sick. And because of that, he's not able to go into the temple. He's not right with God or culture. No one can touch him because he's sick. So there's we see Jesus enter the scene, and very early on in John's gospel, his authority presents itself as knocking down these human categories that have been constructed by the people at that time, but frankly, they've been constructed in our heart as well. This is just what we do. And so my first invitation, or John's invitation to us this morning, is to welcome the authority of Jesus to tear down how we've categorized people and also how we've categorized ourselves. To understand that the invitation into life to the full, into abundant life, is for everyone, including ourselves. Because um, we put others in category, we put ourselves in categories. I remember when we were in Almani, um, when God asked us to leave that assignment and we were getting ready to move to San Diego. Actually, we didn't know where we were going, going at that point. We just knew we were leaving. The senior pastor, and we're, we're young, we have no money like at all. And the senior pastor really graciously said, hey, as they're leaving, if you want to like bless them, give them a gift card or a check or some money, that would be a blessing. And I was like, thank you, God. I'm about to be unemployed. I have no idea. Jen's pregnant. I mean, it was like, it was a moment. And so people are coming, and, and, and we're in the inner city. Like, it's a very poor part of East LA. 
And there's a lot of our congregation that um, lived coming off the streets, had very little money. And there's definitely some people who had some. People were giving us some money and gift cards, feeling super blessed. But there was this guy named Kalixko. And Kalixko was about four foot ten, homeless, um, but was, would always show up the first person, person at the church and would like sweep off the leaves. He would go and he would like make sure everything was right. And it was just one of like our, just one of the best people we had like on our teams. And Kalixko comes up to us, super disheveled looking, looking, gives us this massive hug and gives us this like wad of cash. And as, we're, as we get home, and like it was like so startling, because we're like, do you, how do you have, like, do you need this more than us? And, and we get home, and he had given us, I think, more than anyone else had. And in that moment, what I realized is I had categorized him, like, oh, you're helpful here, you can do this, you, you're, you, you belong in this area. And I had not realized that God would use him to be our biggest financial blessing in a time of great need. And um, it was this like really humbling moment for me. And then the reality is that I do that to myself all the time. There's moments where I just believe, well, I, can, I'm, I have the potential to do this, but I don't have the potential to do that. I'm gifted at this, I'm not gifted at that. But the reality is when, is when I look through the scripture, I can't get more than a few pages with coming after person after person after person who has no business in being impactful, world-changing, influential, and that is exactly who God chooses again and again and again and again. And so I've been reflecting on that this week and, I, and just coming to the realization yet again I have no business being up here. Like, if you knew me in junior high, if you knew me in high school, um, if you knew me uh, this past week, according to my <laughs> closer people in my life, I mean, there's just, there's this sense of like, man, you, there's no qualification to have. And when we're not careful, we, we live within those confines that we place within ourselves. I remember we were working um, with the property manager one time, and he came up, and I recognized him. I'm like, hey, you're, you're Matt, right? And he's like, yeah. How do we know each other? I'm like, we went to high school together. And he kind of looks at me like, I, really? Which shows you my status in high school, right? Like, I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, I totally remember you. He's like, what are you, what are you doing now? I'm like, I'm a pastor. And he kind of tilts his head even more. Like, what? And I'll always have that like image that like, kind of burned into my memory uh, because that face he's making is kind of the same face that I make it myself sometimes. Like, what? How did, how, God used, yeah, and so I think that kind of this opening point is when we look at the authority of Jesus, he elevates those who have been pushed down and he humbles those who have a false sense of pride and a sense of ego. And what he does is he, and the gospel is this incredible equalizer. It, it's, not, it's not suppressing all, and it's not creating this false sense of, of, of anything other than saying, this is, our, this is our true selves to every single one of us. No matter what stage in life are, we are invited into this brand new way of life that the authority of Jesus gives us. Secondly, um, we see that Jesus has the authority over um, our perceived like impossibilities. We all have them. There's all we all have these situations in our life that we're like, yeah, we know, like with God, all things are possible. But I never pray about this one because He won't answer it. Or maybe I prayed about that five years ago. I don't pray about it now because He didn't answer me then. He's not going to answer me now. We have these like spaces in our life that are impossibilities. Um, or their perceived impossibilities. 
And in this is one of the stories that we see this, this father who's a royal official of Rome, he's a governor of Capernaum, is coming. He has all the authority and power that he'd want in the world except to heal his son. And so out of a moment of desperation, he travels 20 miles from Capernaum in the north down across the Sea of Galilee into Cana to find this Jewish rabbi who doesn't share his same faith or lineage or ethnicity and in desperation says, would you please heal my son? And in that moment, all he has to do is just take Jesus at his word and on his way back, he's shocked because his servants meet him and say, your son's healed. And he doesn't say, he's not like, obviously, Jesus said it. No, he's shocked. Like, there's a sense of, of an impossibility. He just traveled 20 miles on foot, 20 miles back, and all he has is a word. And he knows he's probably going to go back to his dead son, but he's met with a servant saying, at the exact moment that Jesus said those words, he was healed. There are these things that we just categorize in our mind that this God can't, he could, but he won't. And it's a dangerous thing for us to live with it. And the authority of Jesus, the, just through the scriptures, I would just ask us, can we just put that aside? Today, um, there's been moments in my life where I've, I've dealt with physical ailments for like over, over two or three years. And I would come and there'd be like moments like, does anyone want prayer for healing? And I would like look around, I'm like, who's going to raise their hand? And I hear the Holy Spirit like, why don't you raise your hand? I'm like, well, you haven't healed me yet, so why would I ask? And like these, these subtle little like things like, well, like, it's just an impossibility. It's not going to happen. It's not probable. So I just kind of chalk it up to that. And I think that this pa- these passages just stir in us to say, man, that's, that's not how we're, uh, we are to live. Now, we don't get to control how Jesus answers prayers, when he answers them, and all of the, and the, but that sense, although it does not give us control, should not limit our sense of faith that God can do whatever he wants that he has that power and that ability. I remember driving down these streets before we planted the church and just being like, just so overwhelmed. Like, how in the world are we going to pay for rent for a new church in Encinitas? Like, if you would have seen the giving that was coming in when we were first coming, I'm like, this is not looking good for us. We're going to like be like beach church, you know, just like me there. Like... <laughs> And Jen, I kid you not, like verbatim, just looks over. She's like, I'm just praying that God gives us a church. I'm like, cool, good for you. Like, (laughs) good luck with that, babe. (laughs) Like, God could do that, you know? Like, (laughs) there's these moments where I'm just like, and and again, like, there's certain people that lend to that. I think it even says in 1 Corinthians, there's a gift of faith. Some people just have that. They're like, what's an impossibility? Have you seen my God? And then there's me. <laughs> Maybe some of you. How we're like, oh, that doesn't really match up in my Excel sheet, so I don't know how that's going to work for God to do that. And I think when we look at the authority of Jesus, we have to come to grips with saying, like, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible for him. Thirdly, we see the, the authority of Jesus overcome a deep sense of helplessness and brokenness, uh, specifically in this man, this, this invalid. I just love those two words, invalid. It's just what people had given him that title. And he's laying there, and he is in a, the deepest sense of brokenness and helplessness because we see it in his physical, mental, emotional, and social state. We see it in his spiritual state. There's nothing about this guy's life that is going well for him. 
Um, let's just kind of walk through a few of these. Number one is his physical state. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. Every day he'd be brought to the, the pool of Bethesda, and there's these five colonnades. And it was just this space where all of the sick were brought every single day. You can imagine the sounds and the smell in a culture without access to like, uh, modern medical care and things like that. All they had to do, their greatest hope, was to stay close to this pool that was fed in by Solomon's stream. But every once in a while, there'd be these intermittent um, kind of springs that would come up and would stir the water. One historian describes the water as being a reddish color, uh, which we know probably carries certain sort of minerals and things like that. So we don't know exactly how this was. It was this like a Jewish superstition? Was there an actual angel stirring the water? And, and, and I'm not going to get into like kind of the theories of what that looks like. But what we do know is this man spent 38 years of his life in his own brokenness, watching other people get healed. That messes with you. That like does something in you, which is not a surprise that when Jesus comes up to him, his first question is, do you want to be well? And to be honest, that's a question, and not to kind of turn this into a psychological thing purely, but that's a deep psychological question because oftentimes the things that have become struggles for us become something of, of a settling in us. Oh yeah, I just struggle with depression. Oh yeah, I just, I'm, I get sick a lot. Oh yeah, I'm just, this is kind of who I am. I was like, you know, family of origin. Or, yeah, just, you know, it's just kind of, and we just, we settle in to these circumstances and sometimes Jesus has to wake us up and say, do you want to be well? Do you, do you want this? And we can see from the man's response, it's not a positive one. He's not like, yes, I have the faith, and he stands up and walks. His response is this, I have no one. And he's looking at the pool, he says, I have no one to help me in. Not understanding that Jesus right there, the author of life, is standing in his presence, and his response is, reveals not only a, a physical ailment, but an emotional and social one. I don't have anyone. And like, right when you think this story, this story couldn't get any sadder, it does. Listen to this. So he, so Jesus uh, heals the man. And you're like, oh, man, this guy must just be like the number one disciple. 38 years, healed instantaneously. And then he goes, and then and the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, look at him, and they're like, hey, you, you're carrying your mat. It's a Sabbath day. You can't do that. And, and he goes, and what does he do? He like blames Jesus. He's like, oh, the guy who healed me told me I should do it. And then they're like, well, who healed you? And then he's like, I don't know. Which is like, this, like there's nothing heroic about this guy. Nothing is going well for him. Like, he's not like, he's not like, this isn't some great underdog comeback story. This is getting worse and worse for him. And, I, and, and then they're like, and then Jesus shows up, finds him in the crowd and says, see, like, you're healed. And what's fascinating, what does he do? He goes and tells the Jewish leaders about him because they're trying to kill him. Like, there's nothing redemptive about this guy's story other than the mercy of Jesus. And maybe that's the point. It's tempting in some of these other stories in the gospel when someone reaches for the hem of the garment, when someone has faith like a mustard seed, what we do is we elevate these people as kind of the point of the story. But there's no hero in this story except Jesus. 
that God doesn't do anything right. We don't hear, see him say thank you. We don't see him like there's no evidence of faith. All we see is Jesus picking this guy out in the crowd. When no one could see him, it says that he saw him and then he learned what happened. The word learned, gnosko, D.A. Carson says that there was an intentional pursuit on Jesus' part to figure out the need and the story of this man. So this man who has become comfortable and settled in his, his sense of being invisible and broken, Jesus shows up, draws his attention with the question, do you want to be well? And he answers, I have no one. And in that moment, he just says, pick up your mat. There is this unreciprocated, I'm going to give you everything that you've been wanting, everything that you need. And the man who had nothing to give continues not to give anything back to him. And, what, and the reason that this story strikes us so, so odd, yet so beautiful, is this is our story. This is the human story. This is the story of Israel. This is a story that Jesus showed up in, where the people of God had come to the, to the realization, oh, oh it's, we have no one. Where is God? And God shows up in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, and they miss him, often as we do. And, and so many scholars believe that the story of the invalid being healed is a case study of what's happening to the people of God and ultimately humanity, where Jesus is showing up, no thanks to us, no, no thanks to our own merit or effort, and just gives us life and healing. Um, how do we know that? Well, in this story, John mentions two numbers. And in Jewish storytelling, numbers mean a lot. They tell the story. It's called numerology. And, and this, again, we, again, I'm not an expert in numerology, but what we do know is that the Pool of Bethesda had five colonnades, but John specifically chose to mention that. There's five colonnades. Now, whenever you see the number five in Jewish literature, it's referring to the law, the Torah. God gave that gift through Moses the people of God, and the people had based their life on, on that. The second number we see is the number 38. The amount of years that this person was by the, by the pool happens to also be the amount of years that Israel was in the desert, or would have had to have been in the desert. They only needed to be in there for one or two as they traveled through, but they were in there for 40, so 38 of those years were unnecessary. So many scholars believe that there's a story beneath the story that John's telling, that Jesus shows up to the nation of Israel. I mean, this is a Jewish festival. He's in the temple at this time. And here's a man in five colonnades, 38 years, and is, and is simply saying, I have no one. There's nothing. I'm stuck like this. And Jesus comes and says, I can make you well. But rather than thanksgiving, there's betrayal. But what's amazing about Jesus' authority is he heals him anyways. How beautiful. Like Jesus, knowing, being God, and maybe through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have figured out this guy was going to like thank him, much less the guy goes and betrays him, stirs up the people. By the way, chapter seven, he comes back six months later. They're still trying to kill him for the Sabbath thing. Like they're not letting this one go. And who's stirring the pot? The guy he just healed. 
And Jesus, probably knowing that, says, I'm still going to heal you. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to show you mercy because your deep helplessness and brokenness has nothing compared to my authority that is moving in love and grace and power and mercy because this is who Jesus is. Fourthly, we see Jesus' authority overcome uh, human conviction. Now, I'm not talking about conviction of sin, but I'm talking about our human, deeply held beliefs, ethos. This is how we think life could be. It could be ethical, cultural, political. Now, the reason I, I say this is because for the audience at this time, their deeply held conviction was one of Sabbath. Now, it wouldn't do me much good trying to convince you to lighten up on the Sabbath like Jesus was because none of you keep the Sabbath unless you're an Orthodox Jew, in which case you would not probably be here. You'd probably look a little different. So I'm pretty sure none of you guys woke up yesterday just so frustrated that people are driving their cars on Saturday. It doesn't really cross your mind. Because we live in a culture largely because we've been influenced by, by Christianity and by the life of Jesus that although we value the principle of Sabbath, the actual legalistic Levitical laws around it are some things we don't observe. So this part kind of starts to feel a little foreign to us. We're like, why are they so mad? Like, lighten up, everyone. Jeez, you're just carrying a mat. You know, anyone else who's just like, man, they're trying to kill Jesus for this? But I think we can all relate that there are certain human convictions that we have we do not like touched. We're like, nope. I mean, I love Jesus, but I also love this. I think like this. I listen to this news radio station, or I believe this ethically, or I think about this. And when whatever that is, we come and we have these very strong convictions and beliefs. And the authority of Jesus in this moment, like they did with the Sabbath, what he's saying is, for them, he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And for us, I think we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we hold our deeply held human convictions at the same level of Jesus' authority, or do we let his authority rule over them? And the reality is, the longer I follow Jesus, the more I realize he's not like me all the way. Like, there's things that matter to Jesus that don't matter to me. There's things that make me angry that don't make Jesus angry, and vice versa. And the reality is, if Jesus thought like me, cared like me, was passionate about the same things, then maybe it was just something I just made up. But the reality is, is Jesus is God. And I'm called to conform into his image, not make him into mine. Which means that the authority of Jesus has to have the right to mess with our own personal sense of authority. Which, like again, just to be honest, because of where we live and the country that we live in, that's hard for us. Because we don't like people messing with that. And again, I don't know what yours are. I'm even still discovering mine. But what I do know is that the longer I follow Jesus, his authority likes to press up against that. And again, some of those things are good and beautiful and align with the, the way of Jesus. And some of those things, there's, there's questions that he wants to ask me, things he wants to challenge me in. And the problem is that the reason we have a part time with that is because we have what, what theologians call an if-then theology. Well, if God is like this, then I'll believe in him. And if God doesn't do this, if, if the God of the Bible thinks like that or acts like that, then 
I don't believe in him. It's if-then theology. By the way, there's a ton of philosophical holes in that kind of mentality and thinking. But beyond that, it just reveals that we actually have a very low view of the authority of Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it like this in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg. Pretty funny, C.S. Lewis. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is the authority of Jesus. If, if we're honest, it messes with us. I mean, it messes with our sense of what's possible and impossible. It messes with our human categories. It messes with our deep brokenness. It messes with our, our deeply held convictions, all of it. I mean, the authority of Jesus is not something just to play around with. But when we recognize it, then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, if Jesus has all authority, what kind of authority does he have? And here's what's amazing, based on the passages we've been reading over the past few months, it's beautiful. It's not some violent dictatorship that's here to, to, to kind of squash us into submission. The authority of Jesus is clearly displayed in the ultimate life giving, of, or the giving of his own life for us that the giving of his own life would produce life for us and life to the full, which leads us to our last point this morning, is that the authority of Jesus is what moves us from mere existence into life to the full. When we talk about belief in Jesus, it is not belief only in Jesus as a historical figure, as a moral teacher, as a rabbi, it's, it's belief that Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful with God. It's who we'll proclaim again and again here at Light Church. It's because it's only within our acceptance of the authority of Jesus that we are moved from just existing in our own helplessness, brokenness, categories, impossibilities, and he moves us into life. Yes, Jesus, whatever you say, you have permission. And by the way, way easier said than done. This will take a lifetime of surrender, continuing to give over to who Jesus is and what he wants from us. But John 5, 39, later on in John chapter five, it says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life or life to the full, abundant life. See, for the Pharisees, it was scriptures. What's it for you? 
Is it your career? Is it a relationship? Is it a certain sort of behavior? Is it a promotion? Is it education? Is it money? I mean, what, what is it that in it you'll think you'll find abundant life? Because as, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Listen, church, we have no other option. If we want the abundant life to the full Jesus offers, we must accept and place our trust in the authority of Jesus Christ in our life. The great news is, is that it'll only produce life. Where the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus came that we would have life and life to the full. So Nala, if you wanna come on up here. If you guys wanna stand to your feet with me, we're gonna just end our morning in prayer. If we could just take a moment right now, just maybe close your eyes and I'm just going to read these categories again. And would you just be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of what he may be wanting to challenge you in, of welcoming the authority of Jesus? Maybe it's, it's the categories you've placed human beings in, or maybe even yourself. Maybe the authority of Jesus is, is pushing against your sense of the impossible. Maybe the authority of Jesus this morning is is challenging and overcoming your deep helplessness and brokenness. You feel like that man at the pool of Bethesda and this morning he's calling you to life. Or is the authority of Jesus challenging some of your convictions? Does he have the right? Have you given him the right to? Let's just take a moment, just be quiet, let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your son. Jesus, we want to be a, a, a community of people that recognizes the authority that you have. And, and it's easy for us, some of us, to say that. Like, yeah, of course, Jesus has authority. But we recognize that God, there's a lot of evidence in our life that challenges that. And Lord, we just want to welcome you in this morning. God, if we've, if we've stopped praying and believing because we've stopped believing in your ability to work miracles, I pray you just come and change that. Lord, if we've become settled in our own brokenness, sickness, or helplessness, I pray that you'd invite us out of that 
back into faith-filled prayer and pursuit of your healing authority and power. I pray you'd heal our hearts for the tendency we have to, to treat other people differently. If there's anything in us, Lord God, that is, is wicked in how we view other people or ourselves, would you rid us of that this morning in Jesus' name? Lord, we welcome your authority, Lord, even against our deepest convictions, Lord God. Lord, if there's anything in us that is not pure, that is not lovely, that is not of you, would you come, Holy Spirit, right now, we welcome you just to have your way. Jesus, we gladly bow our knee to your authority in our life. We love you so much, Jesus. Thank you for your grace, for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.